The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to Salem, Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra, I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is Episode 3. New England in 1692 was not America as we think of it today, but an outpost teetering on the edge of a precipice. Settlers dreamed of building a new Jerusalem, but their new world was a small clearing in a raging wilderness full of threats, both physical and spiritual. If we're to gain any insight on why events at Salem unfolded as they did, we need to understand what life was like in a New England settlement in 1692. So in today's episode, we'll be looking at the pressures on this isolated new community and how they could have impacted on those living there. According to historian of witchcraft Owen Davies, the first thing to consider is the fact that Salem had only been settled some six decades earlier, in 1626. It was named after the Old Testament City of Peace and was founded with big ambitions. What to me is is the most interesting as a historian about it is putting it in that emerging societal context or cultural context you know of a you know a new found this is this this isn't villages and towns where you know for centuries of, of legend and tradition has built up uh, you know in a sense that they're out there to fund a new jerusalem and very quickly it creates terrible trauma within a society and to me it's the newness of the society which i think makes it really interesting to to explore so what exactly did this new society look like On the Massachusetts coast, north of Boston, Salem was in fact made up of two locations roughly 10 miles apart, Salem Town and Salem Village. Professor Marion Gibson told me more. 
There's a couple of communities involved here, and that can be quite confusing for people, I think. So we've got Salem Town and Salem Village to start with. Salem Town is the bit that is is still known as Salem, you know, it's the, the kind of hub of the community. Later on, it went on to be industrialised. It's quite a big town now, and it's where places like the Salem Witchcraft Museum are. But there's a suburb of Salem Town, that the modern Salem Town, called Danvers, and that was Salem Village, and that was a separate community. So they were both called after the, the same biblical term, Salem but they're separate communities and particularly importantly they have separate churches and it's the Salem Village Church where this all kicks off. There were certainly strong ties between the two communities but they weren't always harmonious. Historian of early America Kathleen M. Brown. Salem Town and Salem Village are obviously connected to each other. They're connected to each other politically and Uh, Religiously, Salem Village is west and further inland and less populous, more based in agriculture. There are more merchants in Salem Town, and Salem villagers got tired of having to go into town to go to church, and they had petitioned to get their own church, and they succeeded in that, but they were still politically and economically tied to Salem Town. Marion Gibson again. So you've got Salem Town and Salem Village. And then around that, you've got a whole series of other communities that also go on to accuse people of witchcraft. So you've got places like Andover and Ipswich and Beverly. And you'll notice they're all called after English communities. So, you know, we've got communities there from East Anglia right up to Yorkshire who've sent members of their their villages out to the New World and they founded their own settlements and called them after the place where they came from back at home. And these are all communities where people get accused of witches later on. And the fact that these towns were named after English places is important because these New Englanders saw themselves as just that, English outposts in the middle of nowhere. Kathleen Brown. They are still seeing themselves as English Puritans in North America, which is to say that they think of themselves as English and as Christians who are Puritans and they see themselves as part of a religious community, which is the reason that they have become this North American settlement and colony. I think there is in that, there's an element of wanting to distinguish themselves from the mass of English people who might not have been as godly as they were. So, I definitely don't think this is a case where we have people in Salem thinking of, of themselves as American in any way. As Kathleen highlighted there, this was complicated. They weren't just English. While New Englanders were still connected to life back in the old world, their position as a colony did set them apart. And as Owen Davies told me, it's easy to see how this could lead to something of an identity crisis. Obviously, these settlements, these communities are part of the British Empire, essentially, and they adopt common law. But they're totally new societies at the same time, and a new environment in a country which is already populated by other people. And with conflict from Germans and the French, you're also trying to found their new Jerusalem in this country. And so it's a society which is is both completely towing the line in terms of common law and the judicial and religious structures of the old country, and at the same time is trying to forge its own identity in a sense, almost, you know, it's the origins of, of, of American religion, you know, aren't far off from here where new expressions, homegrown expressions are taking place. And so it's that kind of identity formation at a more sort of rarefied level of politics and religion and culture, which is interesting. And while we're talking about the identity of these colonies, 
It's important to mention here that not all of those who lived in Salem would have considered themselves English. You'll remember that one of the key figures in this story was Tituba, an enslaved woman who historians think was most likely an indigenous American. And Tituba wasn't the only enslaved person living in Salem at the time. At the very least, we know that another enslaved person lived in the Paris household, a man known in the records as John Indian. I asked Kathleen about the role of slavery in early colonies like this. What we know about slavery in New England has changed significantly over the last 10 to 15 years. As scholars have moved away from understanding slavery as simply a function of plantation commodity production and understood it more as the result of warfare, of taking of captives, and of dispossessing Native peoples. So what we now know is there are not large numbers of enslaved people of Native American and African descent in New England, but their presence is nonetheless significant for the way that the community defined itself in racial and Christian terms, as well as in the kind of more conventional terms of, you know, Protestant, Puritan, Catholic, Baptist, etc. The colonists' position at the very edge of the European world didn't just expose them to the identity crises that Owen spoke about earlier. As author Stacey Schiff explained, it also exposed them to much more physical dangers. Every community in New England, and and Salem is really at this point on the frontier, has had its encounters with essentially the howling wilderness, as it's always put, with the wolves and the Native Americans and the dangers which are so close to its edges. And the town watch has always been sensitive to what might be invading the comfort of the community. Stacy mentioned the threat posed by Native Americans there. So let's tackle that first. As white colonists pushed further into Native American territories, often by means of violence and force, they unleashed waves of conflict with the people who had previously lived on the lands they were now trying to settle. Can we make any connection between that and the events at Salem? Kathleen Brown. Salem witchcraft accusations occur at a very fraught period in the history of New England. Leading up to the winter of 1691-1692, New England had been through two major violent episodes of bloodshed with neighboring Native Americans in the order of the most recent outbreaks of violence with Native peoples. That first one was in 1675. It's known as Metacom's War or King Philip's War. And by the time Salem occurred, there would have been people with very vivid memories of what was one of the most violent conflicts with Native peoples in the history of the British colonies. To give you a sense of the scale of that conflict, King Philip's War, or Metacom's War, is thought to have led to the deaths of around 10% of adult men in New England. It was characterised by brutal violence and raiding on both sides. Alongside the settler towns raided by Native American parties, countless Native American settlements were targeted and burned by the colonial militia. And the violence hadn't ended there. And that was followed less than 20 years later with another outbreak of violence along what is now known as Maine, the Maine frontier. And that 
had also produced death and destruction of some of these new settlements to the north of Salem. And Salem itself was located in northern New England, and many of the people in Salem had family, had friends, or had spent time in those northern frontier settlements and had been pushed back during the conflict with Native peoples in 1688-1689, but the violence had continued up to 1691. So, as Kathleen explained there, conflict with Indigenous peoples wasn't just some vague historical backdrop for the New England settlers when the witch trials broke out. Raids on settlements and the dismemberment of colonists was vivid recent living memory. Marion Gibson. And Native Americans would attack settler communities. They would murder settlers. They they would carry people off from the settlements. And, of course, that created a situation of basically hysteria and panic in the settler communities. It was their fault that they were there, but once they were there, they then felt very much under threat from Native Americans trying to get their land back, trying to encourage the settlers to leave. And from historical research, we know that people involved in the Salem trials were directly affected by these kind of incidents. Kathleen Brown. You don't have to look very far when looking at New England magistrates who are involved in the mechanisms that are bringing suspected witches to trial and then convicting them and executing them, that most of them have some connection to Frontier, Maine and the violence. A lot of the accusers and a lot of the accused themselves have those strong connections. Anne Foster, who was accused of witchcraft in the neighbouring settlement of Andover, had seen her grandson left scalped and mutilated after a raid. And court records show that this was a looming fear for many. Under interrogation, Mary Toothaker admitted that following nightmares about a Native American attack, she had been seduced into doing a deal with the devil because he promised to, quote, deliver her from the Indians. Stacey Schiff thinks that the psychological impact of this conflict is something that really shouldn't be overlooked. I think that the proximity of a war with the Native Americans is something we also tend to think away because we look so closely, so so plainly at Salem and we don't see the recent history, which had been one of serious trauma on all sides. Almost everyone involved in, in this nine-month history has had some personal encounter or some familial encounter with the previous war and has known casualties, has known people who were lost or has lost people in the previous war and is still bearing scars from those years. So it's a society that's very much, for different reasons, precarious and under siege. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. 
Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This idea of a community traumatized by a previous conflict and under siege is one that Marion Gibson also expressed to me. The threat the Puritans see from Native Americans around them is really significant and it's, it's, it's understandable that they were concerned about the ways that their communities were broadly under siege. They were under siege because they'd moved on to somebody else's land and taken it from them. So it's not surprising that the Native Americans wanted them out. They were right to be frightened of the Native Americans and they transposed some of those fears onto witches. I want to pause for a moment here to make a small detour from the Salem story, to share something really fascinating that Owen Davies told me. We've spoken about how conflict between white settlers and indigenous Americans could spark paranoia, which in turn may have erupted as a fear of witches. But Owen explained that it wasn't just the Europeans that were triggered by this. There are series and episodes of quite brutal witch hunts that take place amongst several Indigenous American tribes in the early 19th century. And one of the explanations for that is because of the, in a sense, breakdown, structural breakdown, tensions that arise through the contact with Europeans. In other words, the destabilising effect of contact with Europeans in itself can potentially, or did potentially, spark off witch trials and witch persecutions. And also you get the rise of, in a sense, sort of Christian Native American prophets as well, who see the fear of witches in their communities as something which can be, in a sense, used as a cleansing of their society and groups. It's really quite complex to unpick, but it, it, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't through those cultural contacts. So it's not just about conflict, it's also about the ways in which that interactions with Europeans alters and changes and the ways in which Native Americans look at themselves just as the people at Salem did. Looking back towards Salem again, Native Americans were not the only neighbouring people that New Englanders felt under threat from. We know that a lot of New Englanders feel that they are at a moment of crisis by the end of the 1680s and the early 1690s. But there's a kind of a hot Protestant fear and zeal about the presence of French Catholics to their north. And this is a perpetual fear for Protestant New Englanders. We'll talk more about religion and the perceived threat to Puritanism in the next episode. But for now, it's safe to say that Salemites felt under siege from all angles. And according to Kathleen Brown, there was another reason behind New Englanders pushing further into Indigenous territories. One that reveals a society under even more strain. There are reasons why New Englanders were continuing to push out into Native people's lands. One of them had to do with the fact that the family unit, once it was established in New England in the 1630s, was a very prolific unit. And so as agrarian communities that were on limited parcels of land organized around townships, New England families very quickly ran into the problem of needing to find farmland for children. And so this is one of the impetuses behind pushing outward into territories that were still possessed by Native people that still belonged to Native people. So there was the kind of demographic crisis of not enough farmland for these burgeoning families with large numbers of children across New England. Added to this, New England was not the most fertile environment. For farming, New England's pretty grim. It's a short growing season. The ground is full of rocks. It's not 
fertile farm country the way the Mid-Atlantic is, or even the Carolinas or Virginia. It's not got that same kind of potential for agrarian prosperity. And so, yes, there's a little grimness sort of in reading accounts, especially in witchcraft accusations, of how people respond to disaster, how they respond to misfortune, often connected to the deaths of cows or poultry or the loss of a crop or other kinds of agricultural disasters and failures, and the way witchcraft becomes one of the psychological and religious tools for understanding and explaining misfortune. While we're talking about the possible impact of environmental factors, I want to mention something that historians often bring up when they're discussing witch trials, especially in Europe, and that's what's called the Little Ice Age. This was a period between the 14th and the 19th centuries of particularly low temperatures with cold winters and cool wet summers. It's been argued that it's no coincidence that witch trials intensified at a time when climate pressures meant that crops were more likely to fail and harvests were poor. Historian of witchcraft Ronald Hutton told me more. Climate is a factor in witchcraft trials, but it's not the reason why they occur. People produce accusations because they think they've been bewitched. They think they've been harmed by witches. And that sort of harm is going to be much more effective and much more feared in societies close to the edge. And the climate of early modern Europe and North America is exceptionally bad in the 16th, early 17th centuries. It's also accompanied in the peak witch hunting period by a rise in population. So when you have this appalling pair of millstones of deteriorating weather, ruining crops, and a growing population pressing on the resources, people are pushed to the brink in a way they aren't in easier times. So they're much more likely to lose everything with a single bad harvest or to feel the loss of family members more deeply, the loss of productive hands, and to turn hysterically upon the idea of witchcraft as a solution to their problems. And according to Marion Gibson, any climate pressures that were inflicted on Europe and North America by the Little Ice Age may well have been exacerbated in the colonial context by the lack of any safety net. So like everyone around the world, the climate was worsening in that period. It was colder and wetter. And so again, crop yields went down because of that. So there were perhaps specific circumstances of the time, but also just a wider worry that settler communities had that they would run out of resources, they would starve. And there are examples, the Roanoke colony, for example, in the early 17th century, probably starved to death, certainly disappeared into the forest and were never seen again. It was also that their food supply was often in danger. So they were growing their maize, their their grain, their vegetables on land that had once belonged to other people and that hadn't been farmed before. So in order to grow something, you had to cut down the forest. You were left with really poor soil. It was really difficult to grow a crop on it. There were tree stumps everywhere. It was really hard. Farming was really hard and the yields weren't good. So it was really easy in a long winter and the Massachusetts winters can be 
incredibly long and snowy for the community to run out of food. And this must have been a massive concern for them. They were under pressure with regard to their resources as well. So as they cut down the trees, as they moved further out into the forest, they started to run low on wood supplies. There was a big fight between Samuel Paris and the the wider community of Salem over who provided his firewood. And it's just simple, basic things like that, that that we take for granted now, food and heat that can be at the back of witchcraft accusations. And it's easy to imagine how such difficult conditions could have an impact. Marion Gibson. Perhaps over long winters, people become angry with each other. They become frustrated. They are literally locked down together because there's snow outside and there's no food. And there are Native Americans who are going to attack the community and they're they're worried about devils and they're worried about spirits in the woods. And it's a haunted world out there and they don't go out. And suddenly they find themselves arguing with each other. Added to all of this, Stacey Schiff highlighted another really very simple environmental factor at play which could have helped conjure visions of demonic creatures. I think we tend to forget, because we live in an electrified world, how dark, how truly, miserably, pitilessly dark it was in New England, or anywhere for that matter, and how easy it was, therefore, to see things in the night and to see, to not be able to believe your eyes at all times. It's fairly common to begin to see things at a time when you are apparently visually starved, And these girls would have been living in very unadorned homes, very plain whitewashed homes in the middle of a winter with very little visual stimulation of any other kind. They probably were very seldom outside. So they would have had that sort of barren visual landscape. Add to that the fact that hard cider was widely consumed in Salem's 15 alehouses. That's around one alehouse to every 80 inhabitants. Put all of this together... And the impression of life in Salem that emerges is pretty inescapably terrible, making it possible to see how fears and paranoia could spiral out of control. But it's very simple to say that from the comfort of the 21st century. So I asked Kathleen Brown, was life in Salem really that unremittingly grim? don't think it's quite right to think about these settlements as grim, necessarily. And I guess it depends on your perspective, you know, grim compared to what? You know, to my mind, I think living in certain parts of, you know, what was becoming the British Empire, at this point, it's England and and colonies. But there were certain parts of the colonial holdings that I think where life would have been grimmer, for example, in parts of the Carolinas, in parts of the Chesapeake, Virginia, Maryland, and parts of the Caribbean. And I guess it also depends on who you are. It's unremittingly grim, if you're an enslaved person, even if you're a servant. Generally, in the 17th century, people lived fairly long and healthy lives compared to England, and certainly compared to most other places that were English colonial spaces. I think it's not wrong to say that uh, New England was one of the healthiest places in the English-speaking world. And when you think about the grimness of the past, poor health and short lives is, you know, part of the grimness. So I guess what I would say is I'm not sure I think of Salem Village and Salem Town as materially grim. You know, did most people, did a lot of people have enough to eat and drink? Were they able to subsist on what they produced 
people in Salem Town who were closer to the coast were actually able to furnish their houses in a pretty comfortable and even fashionable way, and increasingly so. Again, I would urge a perspective on, you know, the times themselves maybe set a very low bar for what Grimm is. And I think it's not the grimmest place in the world. I think that Kathleen's point here is an interesting one, because it raises the question, yes, life was tough, but was it any more tough in Salem than anywhere else at the time, when many of the pressures that Salemites faced were undoubtedly intensified by their inhospitable environment? They were not alone in facing threats to their survival. This was a period when mortality rates, especially those of infants, were high across the board. Conflict was not uncommon, and communities were deeply dependent on the success of that year's harvest. So while these environmental factors are important to bear in mind, Owen Davies argues that they can only take us so far. It's, it, it comes from this thing of people looking at Salem and other trials, and the witch trials more generally, going, there must be an overarching reason why people were so, inverted commas, mad and insane to, to execute tens of thousands on, under a belief that, you know, of, of witches who don't exist. It, it doesn't go away. I mean, I've, I've seen papers by computational scientists, you know, crunching, crunching numbers about weather data or things like this and going, I can prove that there was a spike at that particular moment. And that what's, that's what explains why the trials took place. Trials took place in different places, different times, in different climates, in different periods, with different populations. And to say that this disease was that because of a poor harvest in, in, in 1630 or whatever, well, yeah, that may have created social instability, which helped or created people even more on the on the poverty line than they already were, and a misfortune happens. But it doesn't explain why it happens. It doesn't explain why people believe what they believe. In our next episode, we'll be delving into Puritanism and asking, how did a former Salem minister end up accused of presiding over satanic baptisms? Salem Investigating the Witch Trials is made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. It's written, researched and presented by me, Ellie Cawthorn, and produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking is by Josette Reeves. BBC History Magazine editor is Rob Attar and our content director is Dave Musgrove. For more history podcasts on a variety of subjects, head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast.